Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm your host, Joshua Kay. You're listening to Season 4, Episode 4 of our in-depth series on climate change and how it's transforming the world that we live in. You know, we're a global community these days. I think, you know, globalisation is really sort of highlighted in the, the challenge of global climate change. On this episode, I'm joined by Anna Jero, a research principal at the University of Sydney's Institute for Sustainable Futures. We chat about the effect of climate change on the developing world. Anna, welcome to the show. Just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're so interested in climate change and the developing world. Sure. Thanks for having me, first of all. It's great to be on here. I'm a researcher at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. I've been there for coming up to 10 years now, which is a um, pretty long time in one job, but it's it's a fantastic place to work because we we work together, um, at least in, in my team, the international development team, to focus on issues of social justice, of poverty, issues around governance, and as you say, climate change. So uh, my main focus is climate change in developing countries in our region. And so we work in partnership with organisations, governments, both at national and subnational level, with NGOs, and also supporting DFAT the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia, to try and better integrate climate change considerations into the aid program and into um, developing partners' policies and practices um, relating to climate change. I'm wondering then if you can sort of set the scene for us. In what ways is climate change affecting the developing world at the moment? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question and it's a really important question because unfortunately, Developing countries are most impacted by climate change, but they're often usually the least able to afford its consequences to sort of, you know, um, adapt and to mitigate the consequences of climate change. So developing countries are sort of by, by definition often facing extreme poverty, have lack of, lack of access to secure and safe shelter, water and sanitation challenges, inequality issues. Unfortunately, climate change is making all of that worse basically climate change is described as a threat multiplier so it's really just exacerbating development challenges that countries are already facing and so given the resource constraints in developing countries this means that implementing policies and strategies need to needing to address climate change it's, it's a huge problem it's a huge challenge and so this is where developed countries like australia and development partners like the world bank and the un and the multilaterals we really need to sort of step up our commitments to developing countries to support these countries to be able to not only cope with, you know, climate change issues now, but sort of to, to look ahead at the projections and to anticipate future risks, the shocks and stresses associated with climate change and how, how they do exacerbate mm. other risks. And also, of course, Australia needs to, you know, look at our own emissions and how they're contributing to, to global climate change. Because, yeah, it is quite a significant uh, contribution that we're making on a per capita basis. So we need to step up our commitments to making deep cuts in carbon emissions as well on mm. the domestic front. You mentioned their projections about the sort of effects that climate change will have on developing nations. Can you tell us a bit about those and what the studies tell us? Yeah, sure. So a lot of my work focuses on the Pacific. And in the Pacific, there's uh, it's a very diverse region. First of all, I guess it's it's important to recognise the Pacific's not a sort of homogenous um, region. It's it's full of very diverse islands, diverse cultures, um, geographies, and so by nature, the the impacts are therefore diverse. Um, there are the low lying atoll countries, and so they are countries like Kiribati and Tuvalu that 
don't extend much much beyond sea level, um, a couple of metres, and, and the atolls are often separated by bridges, like they're, they're very low-lying. And so you can imagine sea level rise um, is a really critical issue and coastal erosion as, you know, the king tides come and, and sea level is get higher. The land is encroached increasingly by, by seawater and that only doesn't only affect sort of the actual land that people are able to inhabit, but it infiltrates groundwater. And obviously water is a, a critical um, resource that people need to survive. We need to um, drink it. We need to grow our food. We need mm. um, animals. And yeah, the whole you know ecosystem is built around water. And so if that water is um, infiltrated by, by salt water, which it is increasingly, it becomes, you know, a existential issue in some of these countries and so it's 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 a really critical here and now issue in in those atoll countries in other countries that are affected by tropical cyclones climate change is increasing the um, frequency and intensity of those storms we've seen you know categories four and five storms increasingly common um, and affecting countries like fiji vanuatu solomon islands tonga over recent years and it just makes again those ongoing development challenges are harder people are needing to um you know the, the term build back better is sort of thrown around a lot these days and that what that is about is becoming more resilient to those um the shocks that climate change is sort of making worse and so yeah tropical cyclones are another issue food security um as rainfall patterns become less predictable those seasonal patterns that people have sort of evolved to depend upon to to grow their crops and to support their livelihoods they're becoming less predictable and so it makes um you know planting crops these traditional ways that people um live their lives in many pacific countries it makes that increasingly challenging people don't know you know when to harvest when to plant because you know things have gone pretty wacky in the in terms of when the rain rain is falling and other things like some of the research I've been involved in um, in Vanuatu, for example, has shown that countries um, and communities that are sort of small islands off the mainland, they might send their children to school on the mainland. And even simple things like the wind patterns changing, mm. becoming more stronger at certain times of day. And this is believed to re relate back to climate change as well. It makes people paddling their canoes across to the mainland to get their kids to school more challenging. So Instead, they have to pay for a motorboat, and so that costs money. And so it might come to the point where they can't actually afford to send their kids to school because of those increasingly strong winds that inhibit their ability to, to cross the water. So huge amount of diverse issues, and it's an area that is really needing, a, you know, it's quite mm. an urgent focus and priority. Yeah, it sounds like the, the effects are so complex. And, I mean, you've talked there about how, the developing world is disproportionately affected by climate change. But some people argue that the developing world currently, at least, disproportionately contributes to climate change in the sense that developing countries emit about 63% of carbon emissions. Why do you think it is that the process of development is so dependent on emitting carbon at the moment? Yeah, I think that's probably a bit of an unfair way of putting it. I think, you know, I look at Australia and our per capita emissions and, you know, they're amongst the highest in the world. Comparing, you know, an average Australian, I think we have an carbon footprint of about between 15 and 17 tonnes. If you compare that to someone in the Solomon Islands, for example, it's, it's less than half a tonne. So I think, you know, the countries you're talking about, you know, it might be sort of a, a collective, you know, like um, China or um, those, the, the BRICS countries, sure they do have um, a higher carbon footprint because they're, they're trying to catch up you know they 
they're looking to um, the more developed countries and, and the wealth that exists in those places. And they're just, they're playing catch up and they're following the same trajectory of, of sort of consumption and growth that developing countries um, have already gone through. So I think it's really unfair to sort of um, point the finger and, and say, well, mm. they're, they're doing more than, than this group of countries. I think we need to consider making, supporting developing countries on trajectories of transition sort of away from fossil fuels rather than sort of, um, you know, blaming this or that. And I think, you know, where the blame lies is countries like Australia. I think we really need to look at our own patterns of consumption and our economic models that are so focused on consumption and growth. And as a, a sort of a good global citizen to try and support developing countries, as well as looking at our own, like I said, our own sort of um, ways of living. You know, we're a global community these days. I think, you know, globalization is really sort of highlighted in the, the challenge of global climate change. Climate change doesn't know borders. And so we need to tackle it as sort of a, a collective effort. So what less carbon intensive alternatives are there to the traditional development model that developing nations can uh, implement? Yeah, well, I think in terms of economic models, I, I sort of, I, I look to the, the linear model that we sort of focus on and we sort of live day to day in Australia is sort of the, the take, make, dispose, you know, we, we extract things from the environment um, we make stuff and then we chuck it out. <laughs> and that's sort of seen as, 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 you know, the norm. It's very much part of our everyday practice. And I think there's a huge amount of problems with that. And we're starting to see them not only with climate change, but with the way that we deal with waste. It's, it's massive. And, and the way that our society and, and our economic model that our society sort of is built on is um, really separates humans and our society from the environment. Um, we see we see it as very separate, and it's quite easy to 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 live that way if you live in a big city because you're so far removed from, in many ways, from the natural environment. I think in in less developed countries, and particularly in indigenous cultures, including Australia, the environment is seen very differently. It's not seen as a resource. It's not seen as something to extract from. It's it's a system in which humans are a very integral part of, and so I think that delicate balance that humans play you know with the environment it, it's not represented at all in our linear model the sort of take make dispose uh, mentality so I think uh, alternatives are you know we can look to indigenous cultures and first nations cultures as a as a sort of a model that much better represent um, humans as part of this system but in terms of sort of a, a more modern more readily sort of applicable model there's the circular economy model mm. some very clever researchers at my own institute the institute for sustainable futures are very much involved in this um, space and i encourage listeners to look look them up because they do some fantastic work so instead of that linear model it, it rethinks that linear design into one that is much more regenerative and it decouples growth from consumption of these finite resources that we extract from our current model um, it sort of rethinks what waste is it rethinks what a resource is it um it continually uses resources so the whole sort of symbol of a circular you know it's it's not linear it reuses and does some really clever things to move away from that so it it does need sort of innovative business models it needs changes in community um, consumer practices and behavior which is massive you know it's not a simple um, answer um, also you know policies and regulatory environment those types of things need um need thought as well but it's to me it's sort of it it absolutely is part of the the response and the, the um 
the answer to global problems like climate change. Because, yeah, in my view, the traditional economic models focused on consumption and growth is absolutely not sustainable. I think we pretty much everyone could agree on that at the moment. I want to go back to the issue of fairness, which you were talking about before, because a lot of discussions about climate change come back to this issue of equity. The developed world, as you pointed out, is responsible for a huge amount of historical carbon emissions, and it's through those emissions that it has developed and has become wealthy. So is it fair for the developed world, which has benefited from these carbon-intensive practices, to demand that developing countries restrict their emissions and forego the same sorts of benefits? No, it's certainly not fair to to expect them to restrict them. I think it's about partnerships and it's about looking at co-benefits. So mitigating emissions, like uh, yeah, limiting carbon emissions, can have benefits domestically as well. And I can think of an example in Tonga, for example. So in Tonga, there's a program that aims to reduce um, the country's dependence on fossil fuels through transitioning to renewable energy. And so you can see transitioning to renewable energy is going to reduce their carbon footprint, going to reduce emissions, which is great globally. Tonga is obviously a country with a, a small um, both per capita and sort of um, total collective emissions. But, you know, let's think about this kind of in the big picture sense. But having a being less dependent on fossil fuel imports, it's obviously if Tonga is an island nation, it needs to import its diesel and its um, other fossil fuels that it uses to produce energy. It's therefore less vulnerable to global price spikes in fossil fuels and it's able to m- much better predict and manage its energy needs domestically. So you can see the sort of co-benefits there in not only reducing emissions, um, but also from an energy kind of management point of view on energy policy, it's much more sensible. So I think it, it's important to look at things in a bit of more of a holistic sense um, in terms of supporting developing countries to transition away from fossil fuels because it's not just the emissions side of things. It's also sort of from an adaptation adaptation of the economy as well as adaptation to climate change impacts. Mm. Yeah, it brings up that interesting debate about how developing countries should respond to climate change. They understandably have limited resources. So should they be focusing on mitigating and adapting to those effects or reducing their carbon footprint? Yeah, well, I think the Tonga example shows that it can sort of, it can sort of do both. Like I said, my experience is predominantly in the Pacific and so I see the impacts of climate change. They're very much a here and now issue. So countries are needing to adapt. It's not really a question of whether they should. It's a question of survival. Communities in many countries across the Pacific, including Fiji and other places, are already having to move their coastal villages um, away from the the coast um, because of things like sea level rise, coastal erosion, um, saltwater intrusion into their crops and that kind of thing. So it's very much a here and now issue. They're needing to adapt to their policies and to develop national climate change strategies, etc., to adapt to the very much here and now issue of climate change. So adaptation is not... Uh, an optional thing for these countries it's a it's a necessity for survival mitigation side like I said I I think globally the countries in the Pacific at least um, do not contribute much at all to climate change so mitigation is not sort of a huge pressing issue but like I said with Tonga it often makes sense for them to do so so they're less relied less sort of tied to 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 the imports which are quite vulnerable to those um, price fluctuations What responsibilities do you think the developed world has to the developing world, especially in the wake of the Paris Climate Agreement? 
I think we have a huge commitment and a huge responsibility. And I speak as sort of an Australian and thinking about our, our government's um, stance. So Australia's commitments are, I think it's a 26 to 28 reduction in emissions on 2005 levels. Our emissions are still increasing. So we really have a responsibility to change this and to pull our weight, as you know, like we said earlier, like Australia is one of the largest per capita emissions of CO, emitters of CO2. And, and as for our responsibilities to develop, you know, developing countries, I think, you know, we spoke earlier about our economic models and that's res primarily responsible for climate change. So we really need to take the bulk of responsibility to mitigate its effects. And that's I spoke, I've sort of said the word partnerships a lot, and I think that speaks to the way that our institute likes to work. It's not about coming in as the experts and telling um, others what to do. That's not how change happens. Change happens by um, really understanding the context in which you're wanting to change and respecting local knowledge and respecting local leadership and local ownership, those kinds of things. And so yeah, I think we need to work together. There needs to be um, a good partnership approach to this. Unfortunately, there's so much tied up in politics. I'm sure, you know, all listeners understand that, you know, in terms of fossil fuels, there's they still receive massive subsidies in Australia um, and leg ups to remain competitive. So to, on the domestic front, you know, I spoke earlier about emissions in Australia still increasing. I think that's something that, yeah, we really need to face. And there's still so much rhetoric around, you know, jobs in the fossil fuel industry and, you know, that, that real push to, to keep it viable. It's really, in my opinion, based on short-term thinking and misinformation. And so I think we really need to sort of unpack and, and my institute's doing this too, to try and really um, expose the job potential that's connected to um, renewable energies. It's really staggering. It's, it's been written up and reported, but I think um, many, com many companies still invested in fossil fuels are starting to, you know, the writing's on the wall, basically. They're already beginning to transition away from fossil fuel as their biggest um, re revenue stream. So... We just need to keep pushing for change. And yeah, like I said, partnership, that's my kind of <laughs> mm -hmm. catchphrase for, for, for this. I think working in partnership and really trying to understand the best way to, to create positive change is um, the best way forward. Are we seeing a trend at all where foreign aid is being politicised, for example, because China, for instance, is willing to fund other countries with their mitigation efforts and Australia feels like it has to match that. Is that a factor at all in any of this? Yeah, certainly. And I think, like I said before, Australia's aid program is sort of the primary um, focus is to advance Australia's interests. And DFAT is very well aware of the geopolitics in the region with, with China, et cetera. And so the Australian government's Pacific step up policy is sort of a reflection of that. So that's basically to for Australia to, Australia's aim is to be seen as the partner of choice for Pacific countries um, to be the development partner of choice. And so they're trying to, I guess, be more visible in terms of infrastructure projects and supporting governments. There are a whole range of different modalities through the aid program, um, and not just the aid program, but through all the whole of, a whole of government approach. That's what the Pacific Step Up is really trying to do to, to yeah, exert a bit more influence and to, to try and be seen as... Um, a good development partner so to to um, employ sort of the the good pr principles of aid effectiveness and those kinds of things so things like good partnership <laughs> and um, respecting sort of local leadership um, aligning with national government's policies so supporting things like their climate change strategies and, and that kind of thing so i think that's certainly quite well understood and and quite visible in the australian government's approach to supporting the pacific 
I'm interested to know in your research, have you seen COVID-19 and the events of the last 16, 17 months damage or change efforts to promote sustainable development in the developing world? Yeah, it's it's really devastating, actually. I um, was reading a World Bank report just a, a week or two ago and um, read, you know, some really pretty devastating stats. Like uh, I think it's 124 million people were pushed into extreme poverty as a result of COVID-19. Wow. Um, and it's particularly devastating because, you know, looking back over the past two decades, the number of people living, living in extreme poverty has actually fallen by a billion people. Things like, you know, the MDGs, the SDGs and um, the efforts to, to reduce inequalities and to support, you know, good development. Um, it was actually making a bit of progress, gaining some traction. Countries were actually meeting some of their targets, you know, hooray. <laughs> and then COVID hit. And yeah, due to COVID, part of the success in reducing poverty is actually being reversed due to the pandemic. So countries have had significant setbacks in their development gains. And so that's obviously really disappointing. And also just to note, of course, that the impacts are not going to be short-lived. It's not like 2021 is looking, you know, super fantastic either. Like, the, the number of people being pushed back into poverty has continued to be increasing. So that 124 million figure was just for 2020. So it's it's not looking good, you know, even with the, the rollout of the vaccine and that kind of thing, you know, there's still a massive rise in infections like we've seen in India mm. and South Asia. So it's um, it's quite devastating. And I guess the reason for this is that all of the efforts, the global efforts for development, have sort of shifted and pivoted to the urgent priority of COVID-19. So they're taking up all the bandwidth and all the finances and all the resources that, you know, those ongoing issues that we spoke about, you know, particularly climate change, but also just addressing inequalities and reducing poverty, those, um, the efforts have sort of been shifted away from those ongoing challenges. They're still happening and they're actually getting worse because COVID-19 is taking away from, from addressing them. So in that sense, I guess COVID-19 is a bit of an immediate distraction from climate change efforts but in some ways does it give you hope in the sense that if the world's able to come together to tackle COVID-19 then maybe maybe they can do the same with climate change? Yeah I read a really interesting paper not long after oh I guess it was sort of August 2020 and just on that point that you just made that sort of really um, congratulating um, I guess um, countries that with the big enough shock it's possible to raise you know huge amounts of money to to respond to the crisis and which was the pandemic and is the pandemic but then sort of questioning like what is it about climate change that is not doing the same thing we keep saying seeing huge shocks climate change driven shocks that you would think shake people into that same sense of urgency of acting like the the bushfires in Australia in the 2019-20 and the massive um, storms that we've seen um, not only in Australia but in the Pacific and, and elsewhere flooding events droughts all these huge climate shocks that are really um really highlighting that climate change is a here and now issue although obviously it is difficult to pin single events on climate change but we're looking at the pattern that is increasingly visible over over the last few decades so what is it that we're not able to um have those same alarm bells ring and um the the prompt to act I, I think it's just such a political issue, unfortunately. It's it's something that I still scratch my head about because it's, it's you know, COVID-19 was responded to in a scientific way. The, the basic science was established and people were generally brought along and understood the, the need to take certain actions. 
with climate change, I guess it's because there is still so much uncertainty and it's once again quite location specific. It's a really tricky one, but it's it's quite frustrating as a, um, someone who works in the climate change space to not see the same sense of urgency applied to climate change as was to the COVID pandemic. And I imagine that's probably due in part to the climate denialism that we've seen in Western politics and in the developed world. Are we seeing any similar sorts of forces in the developing world where leaders refuse to acknowledge climate change? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not aware of any leaders in the developing world who sort of sprout climate denialism. Um, I guess most climate denialists have something to gain from having such a stance. If you dig a little, you know, you don't have to dig too far to find connections to fossil fuel companies or, you know, follow the money kind of thing. People in the developing world, and once again, I'm sort of referring to the Pacific, which is where my experience is, um, they don't have anything to gain from taking such a stance. Like I said a few times, like climate change is a here and now issue. It's not something that can sort of be projected away into the future. It's really something that they're facing now. So, you know, I mentioned, you know, there are communities that are relocating away from their coastal villages. There are communities that are facing water shortages, um, unreliable rainfall patterns, the increasingly strong storms and frequent um, cyclones, they're, they're life-threatening, right? So people in these countries look to their leaders um, to support them to be able to live their lives and to support their families and for their ongoing well-being. So denying climate change would be a bad political move in those mm. places. And so that's, I haven't seen any. I'm, I'm, I may be <laughs> unaware of some examples, but certainly not in the countries where I work where climate change is, is it's a reality for people. Yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on one final thing. I've been doing a bit of research into Bougainville, which is just near um, Papua New Guinea. And there they're facing an urgent need to develop and an urgent need to bring in finances and to bring in money for their population. And one of the key ways they're thinking of doing that is reopening mines. There are some people who argue they should be investing in green agriculture and those sorts of things. But really, it seems like for a lot of these governments, the resources industry and mining and those carbon intensive options are the key ways of development. Have you seen any sort of similar trends in your research? They are around. Other examples are around, I think, in the Solomon Islands, you know, things around forestry and those extractive industries like you've mentioned. And I don't think we can, you know, blame countries for wanting those quick wins. People um, look at the wealth that exists in other places and, and they want that, you know. Um, it's it's not something that we can sort of um, blame people for. I think it's just going to be short-lived, um, short-term, and in, in the longer term, the environmental impacts, um, the negative impacts are, uh, are going to become a, a problem for people to deal with. So I think it's, it's a really tricky one. Um, I mentioned before you need to respect um, local ownership and local leadership and um, local government stances on things and so in some ways it's not up to us as Australians to sort of um, tell people what to do at all it's yeah it's about education I suppose and awareness and and allowing people the full picture of experience in other places you know in other places in Papua New Guinea as well where this has happened and the environmental um, degradation after the mines have sort of done their um, job it's it's really significant and negative. So I think mm. it's a really tricky one and needs to be sensitively um, tackled. 
but I think, yeah, education and awareness to ensure people are fully aware of what they're getting themselves into um, and taking that kind of systems approach that the mine um, doesn't exist in isolation. Um, the, the environmental impacts extend beyond the mine site and um, people's livelihoods beyond that mine site will likely to be negatively affected as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anna. It's been fantastic chatting to you. If any of our listeners want to find out any more information about you or your institute, where can they go? Yeah, good question. Please, please do. So it's the University of Technology Sydney Institute for Sustainable Futures. Our um, website is isf.edu.au. And yeah, I'd really welcome um, any any questions or comments um, through the through your follow the channels, and you'll be, find a contact page. And we'd really be happy to to continue, to continue the conversation with people if they'd like to reach out. Thanks for listening to this in depth episode. Make sure you follow Global Questions on Instagram and check out our website too, where you can leave suggestions and feedback. All the links are in the episode description. We'll see you next week.